the dream of any investor, I don't care if it's real estate, equities, is to seek asymmetrical returns. And what do I mean by asymmetrical returns? Is there a place on that graph where, and I'll call it the upper left-hand corner, where you can get equity-like returns with lower risk? That is the dream investment. Can I find a vehicle where I could get equity-like returns with the lowest risk? This episode is brought to you by Juniper Square, which is trusted by more than 1,800 GPs, including us at Fort Capital, to manage more than 500,000 LP relationships and over $1 trillion in investor equity. They also have a great podcast you'll enjoy, The Distribution by Juniper Square. The Distribution by Juniper Square sits you down with some of the biggest names in commercial real estate, venture capital, and private equity for open and honest conversations about what's happening in the private markets. I enjoyed their recent episode with Alex Robinson and highly recommend you check it out. I've been really excited and it has been cool to watch this company better pitch. They are the experts in private equity deck design. Whether you need a fundraising deck, a corporate overview and track record deck, or investor reporting collateral, they have you covered. Better Pitch is experienced putting together pitch decks for raises as small as a million and as large as half a billion. The best part? Better Pitch completes all design, copywriting, and market research. That's right. They pull all data both on an asset and market level and illustrate the research to support your investment thesis. Your days of moonlighting as a designer and analyst are over. Better Pitch is the plug-and-play option to deliver an institutional quality pitch deck that leads to a more effective fundraise. You send your raw deal documents, they design, provide market research, and refine your copywriting. And the best part? They deliver the final product in a PowerPoint file for you to use on future deals. Better Pitch is extending a risk-free offer exclusively for the Fort Podcast listeners. They will work with you until you're 100% satisfied, accommodating as many revisions as you need. Visit betterpitch.com. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-P-I-T-C-H.com to schedule your call today. Hey guys, if you're not following Fort Capital on LinkedIn, I would. In a prior ad, I talked about our newsletter, but LinkedIn is just as good, except these are in real time. We post weekly, sometimes daily. We talk about career opportunities, information on our latest acquisitions and dispositions, updates across the Fort team, our latest real estate-focused podcast episodes, our most recent content pieces. Stay up to date with the number one fastest-growing private real estate company in Texas by following Fort Capital on LinkedIn. Dean, welcome to the show today. Thank you for joining me. Thank you, Chris. I'm going to come out hot. Tenure treasuries ripping up. I've listened to you speak three or four times, and I'm just going to throw a broad question out there, which is, what are you thinking right now? We have a capital market environment that is in turmoil. And in the real estate space, even though fundamentals are relatively pretty good, except for office, where there's been some real structural obsolescence, we are... The, the industry is in disarray because for 20 years, we lived in an environment where interest rates were low. And whenever you would either buy or develop, 
your yield exceeded interest rates and cap rates. And today, you're in a negative arbitrage situation. The interest rates and cap rates are greater than what you would either buy real estate at or develop it. So things have completely gone upside down. And the second transformational component is that assuming many groups or owners borrowed at three or four percent four or five years ago, and now their loans come up. And because of the increase of the rate from zero to five and a half, the short-term SOFA rate, they now have to refinance at eight or nine percent, assuming they don't want to lock in long when their current loan was four percent. And so you can't borrow enough money based on the higher debt service to pay off your old loan. Then the final factor is the normal source of lenders, the banks, CMBS, even the Wall Street debt funds are pretty much all sidelined right now because of this capital market upheaval. So the even if you could borrow, other than Fannie and Freddie, the sources of liquidity have been significantly diminished. You've been through multiple cycles. Is there one that you could compare this one to? If, you, if we just went back to 08, and a lot of folks might say, oh, well, the banks are better capitalized. They're not as levered. It's different this time. Are there similarities or is this very different? There's, by the way, there's similarities that in 2008, you had a capital market meltdown. No one had money to lend. And even if your banks are stronger today, they're not lending because of the anticipation of taking, you know, revaluation of their assets and higher regulations on banks today. So on the one hand, very similar that you don't have the liquidity from the capital markets. The difference and why this period actually may be one of the most great periods of new investing of all time is in 2008 and nine, the whole system was broken. There was no investment grade and many of the assets really decreased in value because people lost jobs. There was no demand. Rents went down. Here is a different period. In 2023, put aside office. Fundamentals are really pretty okay. They're not roaring, you know, on the multifamily front, you know, rents are not going up five, 10%. They're flat or going down. And there's new supply coming in, but it'll get absorbed because nothing new will get built. Industrial still is pretty okay. Grocery stores are excellent with open air centers, not necessarily malls. The hotel industry yeah, peaked a little last year post pandemic, but it's relatively stable. So it's interesting here because you have a period of capital market illiquidity, but yet fundamentals okay. And if we go to all the loans coming due, I mean, the obvious is your loans come and due, you either need to refinance it or pay it off. Assuming that though, and assuming this kind of tidal wave of this coming over the next few years, like if you had to have some insight into how that might play out, is this going to be a lot of people dropping deals? Is this going to be banks kind of extending and pretending? How do you think banks will be thinking about this as these are coming up for renewal? Yeah. So first of all, 
the goal of any borrower. Extend, extend, extend till 2025. Stay okay. alive till 25. Stay alive to 25, where you're hoping 24 months from now, the short-term rates you know, go down to two and a half, not five and a half. You borrow normally 200, 250 over. We're never going to, I don't believe we will ever see the period of the zero interest rates that we lived, that we had for about seven years. That was, you know, artificially induced. But could we go back to an environment where the normal borrowing rate is four and a half to five, which is really the rate I lived most of my career? Yes, you can make things work there. Okay. But you're not, you may not see that for 18 to 24 months. So the first goal is how do I push out a few years? So when your loan comes up, the first thing you have to say is the best lender you have is your existing lender. Okay. So if you don't have to find new capital, pay the money, pay them off. If you can get new lender to extend, that's goal number one. Okay. Get two more years, whatever it costs. But even to extend, you may have to buy a new sofa cap. It'll be at double the rate. The lender may want to pay down in order for you to extend. So you're really going to need, you know, gap financing. About one, one idea is just to go long where the rates may be you know, six and a quarter, not nine. But oftentimes people don't want to go long and lock up their assets for 10 more years. So they have to go short. The short-term rates are high. So you're going to have a lot of situations where I'll call it the gap refinancing opportunity, which is, let's say, the $40 million loan before. Now it's $30 million. What you could get, but we have to pay down, so you need $10 million. You could go to your investors to get it, but they're typically not going to ante up. So you got to go to the world of either borrowing money from preferred equity or mezzanine. It may cost you 15%. But that 15% may only be for two and a half years, and you may just bite the bullet to get you to 2025. Because you can't sell the property today. Because remember, if you go to sell your property, the new buyer is going to be trying to buy your asset with a 9% debt rate at 55%. The new buyers can't make their numbers work in order for the sellers to get their price. So you have a total standstill on the what I call sale market. You have a total standstill on new development. Tell me why anyone, people were building apartments at five and a half before. So going out three years to five and a half, six percent yield. Why would you build new to five and a half and six if my floating rate debt is eight or nine? You have no idea where your cap rate is. You're in a negative arbitrage position, which means activity is just going to be stalled until you have a movement in the capital markets. I want to describe the situation and hear what you think on this. So a lot of folks think, well, I have locked in low fixed rate debt in the high threes, low fours. If a bank has that on their balance sheet, that's probably not good for them. It's good for the borrower, not good for the bank. I think covenants that were overlooked for the last 20 years are actually going to start making their way. And if a bank can foreclose on somebody that busts a covenant or at least create some a way for a pay down, you might see a lot of these low fixed rate loans start becoming actual issues for the borrowers. What they thought was their best asset might become something that is a thorn in their side. How do you think about that? The banks have so many real issues. They have to play around in the 3 to 4% loan. 
It's not where their manpower should be. So yes, could they play with the MF? Yes, the truth is their bigger issues is having loans coming due. They can't get refinanced. And what do you do about that? Because that's a real issue. So do I think the three or 4% game will be, will banks be renegotiating if you break a covenant? It may be, but I don't think that's a big business for the banks. And I don't think they're, you know, this is a way for them to make their money. I think they have to deal with what they own on their books, legacy assets, and they got to spend their time cleaning up legacy assets right now. And uh, so I, I don't think this is the source. I don't think the banks are that Machiavellian. Maybe wrong. I don't believe so. And I think they're going to focus on those things they should be focusing on. So I, I don't see that as a big risk. What needs to happen to start seeing a normalized market? Is it just pricing coming in to check and deals penciling, or is there other factors that need to happen for a market to normalize and come out of turmoil and chaos? Yeah, look, I, I think the Fed has to be convinced they've tamed inflation and get to a point which is not going to happen this year of starting gently lowering the rates. Because look, you have two situations now. Both the rates went up and the spreads ballooned. Okay. You know, if you look back at spreads in 2008, you know, or in other periods, it's much narrower. You had a double whammy here. You had the short-term rates going from zero to five and a half. And you had the spreads ballooning. And, and I mean, it's crazy. You didn't get to five and a half, and then you want to borrow for a normal loan. It could be 400 over. But five and a half with 400 over, that's nine and a half. By the time you pay your, your, your cap rates, you're at 10 and a half. And you're only borrowing 55%. So the other 45, if you can find that equity, is going to be a lot more expensive because it's lower debt, lower returns. Yeah, so that's why you see out there the, the most preferred asset class for investment is in preferred equity, private credit. And the whole private credit area is just amazing right now. Look, in, the, in any investment business, we talk about risk return. And if in real estate, you say, okay, the lowest risk is senior loans, then maybe preferred, then core assets, then core plus, then value add, then opportunistic, then development, and you go up a curve, a risk return. And that's sort of a, a normal setting. You're you know, if you go do development deals, obviously the only reason you do them is you think that the returns are highest, but you also take the highest risk. Well, the dream of any investor, I don't care if it's real estate, equities, is to seek asymmetrical returns. And what do I mean by asymmetrical returns? Is there a place on that graph where, and I'll call it the upper left-hand corner, where you can get equity-like returns with a lower risk. That is the dream investment. Can I find a vehicle where I could get equity-like returns, upper left-hand corner of the graph with the lowest risk? And I've been investing for 40 years, and I've rarely seen that scenario, okay? Very rarely. Well, guess what? Today, you see that. So let's go back to the original model we had. We said someone had a $40 million loan, 
probably the asset was worth 60 million. They can only borrow 30 million today. So you need a $10 million slug. So that $10 million slug is between 60 and 75% of today's value, not 22's value. So in a period where you could come in at today's value, which is lower, and go between 60 and 75%. What's different today is what you can charge for that piece. So if people are doing senior loans at 10, you can charge 13, 14, 15% for that piece. So one could earn 15% between 60 and 75%. So your risk is lower. I'd rather be at 60 to 75 than 75 to 100. So your risk is lower from getting equity returns. Okay? That to me is what I'll call the, the ideal scenario. Okay? Now, you may say, but Dean, you know what? You know, okay, if you get it for two years, that's fine. You got a little better return for two years. But as, as things cycle through, okay, you have reinvestment risk in two years. So it's a good little niche, but it's very short term. The key to the strategy is what I just said, the short term. How do you create an investment instrument between 60 and 75 that has duration for that? If you could go write that, we could have five-year or 10-year paper, okay? That piece of paper you're creating has a 13.5% or 14 base rent, base return, and the duration gives it a lot of value because if someone wants to, needs to pay you off in three years because of the duration, you have a lot of upside in the duration. So we're focused on, like in the multifamily space, taking that preferred, linking it to 10-year Fannie or Freddie paper so we could get the 13.5% for the next three years. And if rates ultimately come down, I have six years of yield maintenance to sell. So you could prop that to an 18 19% rate return by going into the preferred equity position today. So the key is not just to play private credit, preferred equity. It's what asset do you play in? And number two, how do you create more of a longer-term duration so you're just not a stopgap? And that is the goal for what I think, you know, the people who really do well today has to have that mindset, not just to trade in and out. Because to trade in and out sounds good for 18 months, but if they pay off and that's all it's for, it's not worth it. And I realize it's all just a negotiation, but is there a reason why y'all might be able to get five or 10 and there's going to be other groups signing for 18 months or two years? You're just asking for 10 or is there something oh, else? That- no, there may be borrowers who are saying, if I float, the rate's eight and a half okay, or nine. The tenure with the 10-year treasury paper, maybe six and a quarter. Okay. So you know what? Even though it's not great, I want to lock up my real estate. I want to own longer term. Other people may just be, man, I just want to extend and get me to 2025. And so, which is great when the rates hopefully drop and I could get, sell my position then. So then, you know, if, if there is a ability to prepay you in a shorter period of time, you got to put in bells and whistles to get paid for the short duration of where you're putting your money in. 
And that, that's where the art is. How do you structure it so you get more duration or get paid for making someone pay you off early? Are you seeing like at Lupert Adler, are y'all raising a fund dedicated to that? Or are you seeing folks that maybe had equity funds raised kind of rewriting their docs and now allowing them to kind of enter the private credit space? How is this going to form well, up so quickly? A, well, if I think you, if you had equity funds and you could go get a 15% rate return at a lower risk, I think it qualifies for the equity funds. You know, uh, the equity funds, whether you're preferred equity or common equity, you still equity. And what's wrong with trying to get a 15% rate return with lower risk in your equity funds? Number two, we you know, are, are creating our own private credit pool. Um, but the key for equity groups like myself is we may underwrite equity well, but every equity player thinks they could be a preferred equity or lender by just switching a switch. And you can't. So we went on and we, we have brought in what I think are some of the best capital market people in the marketplace. We brought into our firm so we could combine the capital market expertise of people doing it every day with a common equity approach that we've had or a preferred equity approach, which has been really our business for five years. And it's the combination of the two that make for what I'll call a strong pool of capital. And number two, you got to do it so you're creating a business longer term. Just to create private credit for two years it is not a business you want to be into. So you got to be able to take advantage of the situation. But then as the industry evolves, continue the business. Because anytime you're in the investment business, you're looking to build a business and not just a trade. Yep. Okay, let's role play a little bit. I come to you. I say, Dean, I've got a multifamily deal I bought in 21. I'm getting squeezed. And we'll go back to that situation you just described. And I'm going to need some private credit. What are you asking me? How how are you vetting who you're going to give money to and what situations you actually want to put money into? Because we can assume there will be a lot and you're only going to do a few of them. You got it. So number one, the real estate estate business, it all starts with Okay. Borrowers who are high quality organizations and people who've respected their partners over the years, who are in it for the long term and not syndication, who have their own money behind you, and who are not looking to cash out. I would never do it preferred and let someone cash it out. That's a no no for me. So it all starts with the quality of the borrower. And here's the beauty for us. In the CMBS world or the Wall Street world, they make it in a mezzanine with the UCC or CMBS type product. And as soon as they make that investment, they have the ability to syndicate it. They take it off their books. And so therefore the borrower is going to deal with some servicer, some 26 year old kid, uh, some servicer they don't even know. And, you know, if they ever have an issue three or four years, they're dealing with, there's no relationship oriented. We're in the relationship business. And so we're going to keep these positions within our shop on the book, old fashioned real estate money. And so the borrower will know, or the common equity will know that the people that's on the phone are seeing them today, are the people that I see in three years. And for me, that's really been critical. I've been a big part with the banks and not CMBS because I believe you know, if 
I'm working with Wells Fargo and they make me the loan. They're going to hold that loan. And if there's ever bumps the road, we could go sit down and work things through. If it was CMBS and, and all of a sudden a servicer's there, they have no relationship with you. They have a goal to make your life miserable for 18 months to, they're in the fee business and then move it, move it along. Um, they're not in the business of, and real estate's a long-term game. So that's step one. Step two, the form of the, what I'll call the recap capital. Mezzanine, which most Wall Street people like to use, is three years, 15%, get a UCC. And if your business plan doesn't work, in 90 days, they could own it. Well, if I'm a borrower, um, it's a little scary. Okay? Don't love that. And number two, if you don't have cash flow for two years, all of a sudden you owe this mezzanine 1.3, 1.45 times. So the common equity becomes a zero coupon bond. So th- th- those positions are out there, but we take a different approach. We treat our money as following. I call it common equity with a, re- with a liquidation preference. And what do I mean? Let's assume the loan's 40 million and the preferred is 10 and the common equity is 10. Okay. So I say, Hey, we each have 10 million up. We're going to go 50 50 on all cash flow. I'm going to allow leakage to the borrower as a preferred, a participating preferred so that induces the borrower to keep infusing capital below me. If they have no chance to get any cash flow and there is zero coupon bond, I, they cannot attract capital. They'll be subordinate to mine. So we go 50, 50 in cash flow. Let some leakage go through. And then ultimately when there's a refinance or a sale, we say, Hey, as long as the deal did better than 12 and a half IRR, you keep your 50, 50. However, in the event of success, we're going to have a liquidation preference of our capital plus 12 and a half. And then Chris, you would say to me, well, Dean, the common equity, they give you this preference. What do they get in return? And I give them a bigger promote on my money. So I said, rather than we each own 50, 50, if I have a liquidation preference of my money in 12 and a half, I'll take a 20% kicker above that on the profits. And so basically I'll give up more upside in exchange for downside protection, but it's preferred equity. So if they don't hit their targets in three years, I can't just UCC them. And here's the second big point. I like to, if I have quality borrowers and I believe in the asset, I want to work with that borrower because I think we could bring value creation skill set to make it better for all of us. If I'm a mezzanine player, you're not allowed to deal with the borrower. Lender liability, stay away, I'm a lender. I want to be a preferred, really common equity with the liquidation preference so I can help build value with the borrower. And here's an interesting statement. Years ago, I was asked to invest in a distressed debt fund to do mezzanine pieces in Europe, okay? And Lupert Agra did do it, but the group I liked a lot, and they had a team in Europe, so I personally invested. So they go ahead and they buy into the debt. It's, you know, they're buying at 60, 70% of value, and they buy a few billion dollars of this, and they buy their position. Then a year later, they sell all the loans, and they earn a 20% IRR. 
So the head of their company called me and said, hey, Dean, are you available for round two? You know, we gave you a 20% IRR in round one. And I said, no, I think you did a terrible job because I got a 1.2 multiple. I'm paying ordinary income tax. I got a 20 IRR, but a 1.2 multiple. I said, what you missed was that you were accessing this real estate at a great access point, at 75% of the value. What you should have done was work over time to take your advantageous position, work with the borrowers, and then upon the recovery, add value creation skills and make the assets better. So you get the best of the world. You get in at a lower cost basis and you ride the upside through value creation skills. I would much rather earn a 17 IRR and a 2.2 multiple over five years than earn a 20 IRR with a 1.2 equity multiple. So one of the reasons we do the preferreds with our borrowers, we want the advantageous cost advantage of being between 60 and 75%. But I want to work with the borrowers that upon things of recovery, I want to work with them and share part of that upside. So that goes back to my same thesis of asymmetrical risk. If I could be in a lower cost basis today to protect my downside, and I could help ride the recovery up on the upside, can I get equity-like returns in the 60 to 75%? And you can do it most advantageously through a preferred equity concept, which has been our business, than the strict mezzanine. And here's the last piece. Everyone loves secondaries out there. Secondary, secondary, secondary. So, you know, the institutions invest in the funds. And if they don't like it for five, you know, they could go and have a secondary. And people, brothers, sisters, cousins, are all raising secondary funds. So when most people do their preferred equity pieces, they put their investments in, and then they go on to the next deal. Then they go to the next deal. Then they go on to the next deal. The, what I'll call the family and friend, the individual marketplace has no secondaries out there like the B-Reads for Blacks. There's no secondaries for those people. Okay, they're stuck. Good, bad, or indifferent. They're stuck. When we do a preferred equity into a deal, and remember my example, you know, 40 of senior, 10 of our preferred, 10 of theirs. Once you're in and you understand the asset better, you have an opportunity to approach the limited partners from the old, you know, from the, from the former deal. And say, by the way, we're thrilled to have the end and we're going to work this over the next three to five years. And I hope we all win. But in the unlikely event, you want some liquidity today. You know, here's 35, 40 cents on the dollar. So the beauty of these preferreds, let's say you're initially marking at a 15 rate return. You have a secondary opportunity over time. If you can value the asset, you can't, but you're not going to make it obligatory. People, you know, they have the right to stay in, but if they don't, you could you could you could create your own secondary business on these preferreds, and they have what I call second bite of the apple. And so, to me, it's not anything treacherous or anything. They're totally permitted to stay in. But you find for a lot of reasons, people say, "I don't even know how I got in that deal in the first place. I don't even know what the property is." But someone got me in, and yes, my life changed. I want some liquidity, and even though you know th- this is not a perfect market. We'll, we'll, we'll take the, you know, we'll take the offer and move on. So you always have to be thinking in this business of 
the assets that you know best are the ones you need to try to capitalize on. And when you're on the inside of an asset where I'm already having an investment versus being on the outside, that's good. And that offers more opportunities. So you have to keep thinking through the different components and how do you get an out. My job is to get outsized return while always mitigating the risk. That is our total, total business. If I come to you and you say, okay, I'm in your deal, should I have already gone to my common equity that I started with in my lender and said, I'm trying to do this deal and get their permission? Or do I get your permission first that you're in and then I go get permission from the, the parties that are already in? Well, the, make uh, this easy. First of all, the lender, the lender wants to pay them, right? So they'll, they love this, okay? Especially if it's preferred and not met. There's no intercreditor payment. And we structured ours as common equity with a liquidation preference. We're the dream to the lender. So now, how do I deal with the, the limits, right? So the limits can say, oh, my God, a 15% piece of paper is paying down the debt. I'm behind 15% or whatever this is. I don't like it. And by the way, so you know how to deal with that? You give everyone the right to co-invest in the same terms. So to the limits, I say, hey, you want half the action? Feel free to write your check and you get the same terms as me. So as long as you provide the existing limited partner base, the same right to invest, that's really fair. And I, we are happy as long as we control these half the piece. We're delighted for the limits to invest in the piece. Come along. And to me, that takes away the conflict. And, and as long as people know they have the right to do what we're doing, they're on board. And if you don't give them the right, they can object. And, but, and then it gets ugly forever. Not for us. We're already out of there. But so to me, the right to bring people along is the best way to deal with that upfront because everyone has the same opportunity to participate. Okay, I want to move to maybe a little more discussion on just asset classes. And I'll start with the the big one in the room. I Now I come to you and I say, I got a busted office deal, which I think we can kind of put in its own category now. With multi, at least you're probably thinking, yes, there's people that are always going to live here. This is a market. Office is a little different. Maybe we'll just start with how are you thinking about office? And I know there's different types of office and classes, right. but when I say office, what do you say? I say today. It's a very difficult asset class to evaluate. There's significant amount of lack of transparency, uncertainty, and I'll go through that in a minute. And because of those factors, it's a difficult place for us to play in. So for example, a building may be 90% leased today, 95. But when you walk the floors of the building, you see only half the space occupied. So even though you may have an eight-year wall where that's the average term of the rest of the building, you're sitting there and saying, what's the likelihood of these tenants renewing if they're only utilizing half their space? How do you underwrite that? Okay. So number one, until we have greater transparency, how many days a week people come back to work? 
You know, people are only coming back to work three days a week. You need half your space. And why are you going to build out all these fancy offices? They sit empty half the time. So number one, I don't believe we have enough transparency to make that call. Now, you could argue that Europe is substantially back in terms of occupying their office space. So it's just a matter of time for the U.S. to fall that way. Maybe. But I don't know. So number one, very difficult, very difficult to underwrite with conviction. And my belief is there's so many other places to make money today. Do I really need to take that risk? Uh, number two, you have very unfriendly capital markets. You're not going to buy an asset and get financing. Now, what you could do is if it goes back to the lender, like I said, your best lender is your existing lender. So you cut a deal with that lender, takes back paper for five years. Number three, I will say this. Office is not going away. Maybe the amount of office is going away. But office itself, you're still going to have people working and going to the office. So you're going to have a tendency for the better buildings, I think, to survive. The commodity buildings, you know, will get crushed. There's probably no room for that. But there will be office space, office tenants. It's just not going to be at the level that we've had in all these years. So, you know, will someone or some groups make money in office? Yeah. Okay. You know, they'll, they'll plow through the next five years and come out the other end. But there's another, Chris, fundamental mispricing of office. And I've been talking about this for 40 years. No one really seems to listen to me, but I will articulate it again. In multifamily and industrial and retail and hotel, the you, you take a multiple of the net operating income, okay? So if you have a $10 million net operating income and it's a, yeah, 15 times multiple, 12 times multiple, the property's worth 120 million. And the net operating income is after reserve. So if I have 10 million of NOI, I get 10 million to pay my bills, okay? So you, you, the cap rate is really off of net cash flow in the asset classes I just articulated. The office is completely different. So if you have 10 million of NOI, but you have tenants rolling every you know, every two years. The level of tenant allowance and leasing commissions soak up your cash flow. So even though your NOI was ten million, your average net cash flow is seven million. Okay. Tell me why the business for the last thirty or forty years was not doing that twelve multiple seven million was to be eighty four million versus one hundred twenty million. The, there's been a huge disconnect between net cash flow and NOI. And now the argument must, must be, well, the 10 allowance you put in, you're going to get higher and higher rents. So as you do the annual 10 allowance and the leasing commissions get higher rents. So that was, so you were creating value on the top line by putting in that three million a year below. I'll make an argument today that whoever's putting that money in today, you probably, unless you're in a like, extraordinary market, you know, you're in Miami or, you know, just, or you're the best of the best that 
the bottom line three million is almost an annual expense to stay even. And if it's annual expense, you got to start capitalizing net cash flow and not NOI. And if, and that is a differential, probably four hundred four to five hundred base points of cap rate. So to me, until the industry sort of sees it the way I do, and I can't pay bills of NOI in office because my below the line items are so high that you need to capitalize cash, net cash, and not NOI to pay your bills. And so I think you you know you have that. And I think it's going to be difficult. I think you have to go to that point because I don't think the 10 allows a leasing commission in a market of excess supply everywhere is going to mean higher rents. I think it's going to be flat rents. So if you're going to have flat rents, you got to treat it like annual expenditures. And that's why even if you go to the public markets and you look at companies and people do a multiple EBITDA, well, there's a big difference of multiple EBITDA where the capital expenditures below the line represent 10% of EBITDA. But there are plenty of companies that below the line could be 40% of EBITDA. So, you know, why aren't I doing it? Uh, Not at EBITDA, but again, a net cash flow, the multiple. So to me, the office building market not only has its own structural impediments, you know, who, how many days people could come to work and the impact on supply. I think they're going to have some rental adjustments. And I think the whole nature of buying office buildings have to shift from a multiple of NOI to a multiple of net cash flow. And that'll be significant. And I think once it starts adjusting that way, then maybe you can start looking at it. But until they adjust it, you can't buy these things. And finally, one of the benefits of real estate, whether it be multifamily, you know, the, the industrial, is the ability to generate some current yield. So if you're targeting a 15 IRR, if you could get 6, 7, 8 in current yield and 8% on the back end, it's a nice balance. And when you go through downturns, it's been those type of rental assets that rebounded the best, which is always your theory. You know, when you go through a downturn, how, how do you make out? Versus what I call a back-ended asset. A back-ended asset is like office. If you keep putting money in every year, you have no cash flow. So you're waiting for years five and six to sell it. All your return is back-end weighted. So to me, I don't like the balance between cash flow and appreciation in office. It's got to enter into the rental asset class, which it hasn't yet, which also gives me one more thing. I'll call rental assets versus discretionary assets. A rental asset, you need a place to live, multifamily. You need a place to shop, the grocery. You need some industrial to distribute goods. You need some, you know, some hotels. Well, there you have rental assets. People need a place to live, work, and, and shop. And there's a rental stream. And what I found in the last downturn, 2008 or nine, rental assets got hurt, but they rebounded. Okay. And I'll call them necessity assets or non-discretionary assets. Now let's go to the discretionary assets. Second homes, condos, you know, residential resorts, land, okay? When the downturn occurred, there was no floor. They're discretionary. Who needs a second home, okay? You know, condos are sort of scary. It's all in the back end. There's no cash flow. 
So when you go to sell, if you're in a good period, you make money. So people in Miami made some money. People in New York with the condos, when they hit a tough market, they sit there, okay? So it's all back-end weighted. So the level in, in the downturns, there are no floors to these discretionary, non-necessity assets. So if you are a big believer that you got to create a portfolio of 90% winners and avoid losers at all costs because the losers destroy you. You can't have 50% winners and 50% losers. You need 90% winners and 10% break even. That's a portfolio you need. That's called portfolio composition. If you believe in that, then the selection of the type of asset, rental assets versus discretionary, is a critical component of your investment thinking. So Charlie Munger calls EBITDA bullshit earnings, and you're calling NOI to office buildings bullshit earnings. Yeah. Okay. Why not? All right. Somebody told me the other day, and you probably can fact check this or know this, that 30% of most institutional capital has flown to office and coastal markets. So if you look at the total allocation to real estate from institutions, a lot of it is sitting in these office buildings. Maybe it's 30, maybe it's less. How will that impact this next cycle when all this institutional capital is in what we're calling a really troubled asset where it's hard to define what to do? Like, I guess, how, how does that impact the market or does it? I'm not sure it impacts the market. I think it impacts the market on the institutions. And you know, if their goal was they had to earn 7.5% to meet the pension fund needs, I think you have to accurately mark the assets. Well, just going from NOI to net cash flows are marked, let alone the lack of liquidity you can't sell for two or three years. I mean, there's no buyers. So I think whether it be the banks or the institutions, you know, look, in my early part of my career, there were only two asset classes. Interesting. It wasn't multifamily industrial. The big institutions threw up on that stuff. They, you know, they were thought, that was stuff for like scrappy people like me. Okay. They, they need to put big dollars out and they went to office and malls. Okay. And that was, you know, growing up, you know, growing up in this business, those were the big institute powerhouses. We couldn't play in there because the institutions were so big in that. Interesting. The malls went first and you had 1200 malls in America. If probably 200 left, they're, they're real malls, okay? And even if some B malls are operating, it's just a matter of time. The day a landlord says they're not going to invest in that mall to buy a tenant in, it's over. And so, say 200 Bowie, the Good Fortress malls, yeah, they're, they're, those are terrific. They're also owned by you know, a few players. I mean, Simon has a terrific portfolio of Fortress malls. Peter Lowy had them. Westfield that he sold them. So, those assets to me are, you know, the 200 are gold. We talk about a thousand of them that are gone. Okay. And you're going to have some of the same issues with office. You have big holdings in office, but really the class A, A plus buildings. Yeah. They're probably, they're actually getting the better ones. Okay. You go to New York City and Vanderbilt and 425 Park and Hudson Yards. Uh, the best of the best get tenants. Okay. But that's only 10% of the stock. What are you doing all the rest of the stuff? Where you have a hot market in Miami, an office, 
or you know Steve Ross creating new Class A office in West Palm Beach. You, you know, you got demand. But the other thing that I want to focus on is in looking at assets, we're in the business of leasing space. Period. I don't care what it is. What are your demand generators? Look, there can be oversupply markets, but eventually people absorb supply. The most important thing is, and John Gray says it great, be in the right neighborhood with the right asset class. Have the demand as a tailwind, not a headwind. So we are a firm believer, whatever we invest in, I don't want to be just a low-cost provider and playing the rearrange of chairs on the ship the Titanic on buying you know, buying people's tenants over. You gotta be in a market where you can see future demand. You gotta start there. And what is demand? Demand means population growth, the right demographics, et cetera. So demand is everything. And if you're in a market with the declining demand, you're never going to get that phone call and say, hey, you know, when the phone rings, you don't want to answer because it's got to be bad news, okay? So you, you, know, you want to be in a market that you could look out five to 10 years and there's demand or an asset class. That's a really important part of the way we look at things. Do you think there's an asset class that exists today that nobody knows is dying? Like you could kind of say malls did it. You could kind of say big box retail is kind of dying a little. Maybe we could throw office in there. Is there something else? Maybe it's this Airbnb world. Is there something on in your mind where you're like, this thing's dying and nobody knows it yet? So, and this is an area that I don't know about, but I'm just you know, experiencing it here in Philadelphia. The life science space. So on the one hand, you say life science, healthcare, you know, biotech is growing, good business, okay? So people went on a rampage in building life science buildings at big cost spaces, whether it be in Boston, in the MIT area, which is great, San Diego, Philadelphia outside of Penn, and you had this mad surge into life science. But then you have to say, who are the real tenants in life science? So you got the big pharmacies and the pharmaceuticals, and those are strong. The problem with that is they're so strong they could build their own buildings. So why go with the developer when you could build your own building? So we see that in Philadelphia right outside my window. Sparks Therapeutics. They start as a tenant. They need a million square feet. They're building it themselves. Okay. And then you get the, the venture capital ones, you know, the young biotech. And yeah, they're, they're around, but they don't have credit. They don't take a lot of space. The big business was that biotech company that went public at a two or three billion dollar valuation. They had a lot of capital. So they went, you know, when the building was built, they go take the space and they were very vibrant. Well, when the market started reducing the value of those companies, so they lost 80% of their value. They're no longer viable for tenancy. So the demand for space, even though I like the whole concept of healthcare and growth and, and, you know, innovation, you know, Penn just had two of their great scientists, you know, get, get significant awards for their work during the pandemic. There hasn't been many leases signed in the last 10 months in Philadelphia. Okay. In our life science area. And you see the slowdown pretty much everywhere. Is it going to continue the slowdown? I don't know. I like the space, but I think people got very exuberant on it. 
And, you know, to me, looking out in the next 24, 36 months, you just don't see the activity yet on that. By the way, when people said retail is dead, retail's not dead. It's just reconfiguring, okay? The e-commerce business is 15%. It's leveling off. Brick and mortar still does 85% of your sales. Grocery, I mean, we're, we're obviously we're very active there in Albertsons, has been solid as a rock. Outdoor lifestyle centers where people don't have to go in the mall, but they can get something to eat. And, and, and some of the big boxes that you talked about are integrating themselves into more livable lifestyle centers. They're here to stay. They're strong. People are still there. So interesting when we said retail was dead, you know, five years ago, it's not dead. So it was adjusting. And what was most interesting that what the pandemic did was it required those retailers who did not have a good online presence. They were forced to create one or they were out. And like in the grocery business, we didn't have a vibrant online business. But in order to retain our customer, we had to provide a service that if you're in the store or your home, or you could order and pick it up outside. We had to elevate our game in a, in a year period of time when it may have been five or seven years. So I think the integration of brick and mortar and e-commerce became the buzzword. And also you can see Maybe e-commerce tends saying, hey, I need to get some brick and mortars to round out our offering. And by the way, in the grocery space, you know, even though it's nice to say, hey, I can order online, to be in the e-commerce grocery business like Amazon is very difficult because think about when you package goods. If you go put raw meat next to ice cream, next to hot chicken, it's not an easy thing for a $40 order to deliver and package. It's just a lot more different than if I'm doing e-commerce and TVs or, or electronics or books where you could just send out from a warehouse. You own real estate and you just said the hot word. I've heard you say this before, Albertsons. How's a big real estate fund involved with Albertsons? If you could maybe describe how you got into it and then a little more about how owning that asset or owning a piece of that asset informs how you look at the world. I clearly in, two, in 2005... Did not wake up and say, need to be in the grocery business. (laughs) We're real estate people, but this is very interesting. So we created a business with my partner, Hirschclaff, where we wanted to buy real estate, where the seller or the owner of real estate didn't advertise there in the real estate business. We wanted to go on roads that others didn't travel on. So where could we go? to buy valuable real estate that could be adaptably reused out of the public eye. So we start a business of tracking distressed retailers who may go into bankruptcy, but own valuable real estate, owned or had long-term leases that were cheap. And you know they were retail, but people didn't focus on what they own in their real estate. So our first play was Heckinger's, they go into bankruptcy, we buy a few empty stores. And then, by the way, so well-located, you're able to release them to better credit retail. Okay? Number two, Levitt's Furniture. And no one's walked around saying, you know, you know, let's go buy real estate. You know, Levitt's wasn't out. They were marking beds and, and couches, not real estate. So we were tracking them when, when we they went to bankruptcy. We said, oh, my God, they own some amazing real estate right on the 494 in San Francisco, right in the highway in Paramus. It was amazing. And in their bankruptcy court, 
Oh, I didn't see Blackstone or Starwood or you know, terrific organizations playing the game. There are a bunch of scrappy entrepreneurs playing in this game. And so we'd go into bankruptcy. We'd buy all the Levitas. Now we own these boxes at 20 bucks a foot. We go to the credit retailers at eight, 10 bucks a foot rent, or we split the boxes or we level the boxes. And it was a real estate business of buying vacant boxes in an area where the sellers were a bankruptcy court and not hiring East still to get maximum price. And we would buy these and redevelop them. Then we went to Mervyn's, 276 locations in California. Amazing real estate. Some were connected malls, some were outside. You know, Mervyn's in Irvine at a $2 rent when it was a $20 market. And, and there, what was interesting is we teamed up with Cerberus and Sun because Mervyn's was an operating business. So we had to have a group operating the business while we look to maximize the real estate. So you would look for those situations where Mervyn's was not performing well, but the real estate was amazing, okay? And, and finding situations to maximize both the business and real estate. Then we did some of this in ShopCov. We did, and this is crazy when I say this, 170 million square feet of buying distressed real estate from retailers and bankruptcy. 170 million square feet is the size of the Simon Reed. Returns were ex- extraordinary. So in 2005, we looked at this company called Albertsons. At that time, 600 stores Albertsons. There was another 700 store package of Albertsons that wasn't available. We looked at Albertsons as a real estate play. 600 locations that over time, we would vacate those locations and release them to other grocers or other users. And over time, liquidate the 600 stores and release them to more vibrant retailers. And in their case, Hirsch and I, since it was a, a much bigger deal, teamed up with Timco, a public REIT, and Jay Shonstein, amazing operator of these types of stores. And we said, okay, of the 600 stores, let's take the first 300. We'll close them and go release them. So we sold a bunch to save a lot in San Francisco. We closed the ones in Florida, which overall may have been a mistake. It was, you know, those were good, but it, and we released them to Ross, Marshall, Bed Bath and Beyond at much higher rates. And so, and by the way, since there's 600 stores, we found the former operator of Albertson said, do us a favor. Well, we play real estate renovation, these 300. Just operate the other 300, and then we'll call you in two years, okay? So we buy these assets cheap, we, re- we renovate them, and after two years, we call Bob Miller. Old-time, amazing operator. I said, Bob, it's time for us to you know, take the 300 stores. Thank you for operating them. You saved us a lot of money. And now the real estate guy's got to do what we got to do. And he says, Dean, before you just want to close and release them, I want to say, show you something. We're making a shitload of money. <laughs> I said, what do you mean? We didn't give you any money to operate. You know, he goes, I use my old, you know, my skill set, and we're making money. So all of a sudden, we said to ourselves, hey, maybe there's an opportunity to, to build this up. So the 700 Albertsons that we didn't buy, and these were the good California stores, we ended up buying them. So we had started with 600, went to 300, 
find out we could operate because we have this great team, bought another 700. All of a sudden, we're in the grocery business. Thousand stores, <laughs> good operation team. By the way, a crackerjack real estate team. We're doing the same thing on the real estate you know, that we were like on Murphy's where the real estate assets that could be upgraded from, we had a Shaw's in Boston right across from Fenway Park. Well, it was a development site. We have several of those in D.C., several of those in California, Santa Monica. So we still worked the portfolio from real estate, but we were really running the business too. And then in 2014, the David and Goliath, the David R Group, goes after Safeway. And in a $14 billion deal, we added 1,400 Safeway stores. Now we're at 2,300 store chain. (laughs) 275,000 employees, 76 billion in revenues. We're the second largest private company. And then we took the company public about three or four years ago at, you know, at a $16 value, which was about our value is $3. Okay. And we took it 16. And then ultimately we brought in some additional management team. We've done a marvelous job. And in last October, we entered into agreement to sell the company to Kroger, effectively at a, about a $35 value. And now it's subject to FTC approval. And so this is just public confirmation. So the FTC is reviewing whether they'll approve a sale to Kroger or not. And We'll see. So, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. And, you know, we're, we're all hopeful, but we'll see. But it's been a, a, a 14-year ride. We've had a great invest, investor base who stuck with us to, as we kept creating value. But it goes to the point I said earlier, as you grow in this business, you just don't want to be a deal shop. How can you use the platform and infrastructure it gives you the competitive edge in anything we do in this business. What's my bearish entry? What's my competitive edge? And when I have a platform of 2,300 markets, I can look at any grocery business around the country. I got superior knowledge. I got an operational team. So when we evaluate any retail center with grocery, no one could compete with us because of the knowledge we have in Albertsons. So you could use it as a strength. So when you could build a vibrant infrastructure in a platform to do additional transactions off of a platform that you have a competitive edge is the way investment vehicles should go. If you're just in the one-off deal left and right doing that, it's a hard way to make a living. So this has been an evolution of the Lubert Agri Funds to say, where's the fulcrum point? If we have a good idea and a good concept, where can we join it? So we could replicate the investment success on a more and a larger platform basis. And but when I was 25 years younger, yeah, you know, had to look at everything. Okay. And that's the way you, you made a living. But as you you know grow into this business over time, you learn that number one, you need a competitive edge. Number two, you need execution, vocal execution. Every time I see a New Yorker doing a deal in Miami. Or LA, I say, that makes sense to me. Local people execute better. I want to team up with the best of the best. Number three, people matter. People count who you do business with. 
creating relationships is the way to build platforms together. And so you got to stick with the fundamentals. And once you have the fundamentals, the fundamentals that gives you that risk mitigation component to protect the downside. And then you try to create your value through your value creation skills. That is one of my favorite real estate stories I've ever heard. I've done 312 of these episodes. I have a question. Do things like that still exist? You said you did this in 2005. You obviously proved there was a model to look at public companies for their real estate, not their business. You've heard more of these stories over the last, whatever, 18 years. As we sit here today, would you say like an opportunity like Albertsons even exists anymore? Or is that arbitrage kind of gone? Well, when the retail space is very difficult because you need new retailers to take the existing space. So one of the beauties in the 2005 up was the growth of the power retailers, Marshalls, Roth, Bed Bath, who unfortunately went into bankruptcy, okay? You had this big growth of that 20 to 40,000 square foot user going along with you. In today's world, you don't get paid for growth of stores. You get paid for combining brick and mortars with e-commerce and owning your customer. So the business plan for most retailers, now there's retailers like Family Dollar and Five Below, they grow by stores. But the business plan for the big boxes, and it's not necessarily let's open a hundred new stores. It's, you know what? We have to integrate e-commerce with brick and mortar so that we do a better job for a customer. That's what's given credit. Owning, Building more stores, not. So even if you bought a retailer and you got had a lot of cheap real estate, the ability to refill it today is much more difficult. Okay. So I'll give you uh, some other examples. So, so the ability to refill it today, you don't have 10 retailers lined up to gobble the space. Now you could say, yeah, but Dean, well, you know, what about buying the real estate? Why not buy Target for the real estate? Or why not buy McDonald's for the real estate? Well, that doesn't make any sense because Target and McDonald's are already maximizing the use of their real estate. So it's not like you're going to take Target out and put someone better in. They're already the best for that real estate. Our plan was taking those retailers who are not utilizing their space properly, not maximizing it, and going to someone. So here's the here's what happened. 2020, Toys R Us goes bust. And they have 400 stores. So we brought the teams together again. 400 stores. You know, let's gobble them up. No one's better than us in this business. So we you know, Tim Cohen, Sean Steen, and Claff in the same group. When we did the analysis on the 400 stores in the old days, we would have had a tenant for them. Here, before we did a bid, we go out to the big tenants. And obviously, we've got a credibility with them. We've given them a lot of space over the years. And guess what? Are the 400 locations... We were only to identify 30 tenants that would basically pre-commit to us. So, you know, Burlington and people like that. So those are, we only bought 30. So the days of buying 400 that we did for 20 years, those days were over because you didn't have the new people going to Then, last piece. So then I said, my God, there's a lot of Sears and pennies. Who is the growth user for the space? And guess who it was? After 2020, it was Amazon for a little. Amazon was looking to do in 148,000 square feet, five regional warehouses, one big warehouse, 
So we took the program and went to Amazon and said, we could access the 150,000 square foot buildings in the right locations by teaming you up for distressed real estate, okay? By the way, great gig for a year, great gig. And by the way, you buy these buildings cheap and then they come in with Amazon credit. You're doing Amazon's at seven, their bonds are at three. You know, I thought that was the business of the future until Amazon called us one December, two years ago, said, Dean, thank you for lining up 85 sites, but we're, we're shutting down. We're just not adding more stories. So that gig was an interesting gig for a while. Same concept, pandemic hits, 2021. Who's going bust? The restaurants, okay? So what did we do? We formed a group. Uh, there were a lot of restaurants going bad, but then you had the nationals who wanted new pad sites because they needed double drive-through, the Chick-fil-A's, the Starbucks, you know, all investment-grade users. So we teamed up with the tenants to form a pool to go after the distressed restaurant pads. A great strategy, okay? And we started looking at restaurants that are closing 200 locations, lining them up with the Chick-fil-A's and the Starbucks and the Dunkin' Donuts. So we're basically buying distressed real estate but putting investment-grade credit. If I could put a you know, 15-year Chick-fil-A at 7% when the bonds are at 3 that's a good piece of real estate. The problem is PPP came in after about four months and said, Dean, I said to the world, no more of this. We're going to provide you know, assistance to all the restaurants. So therefore, cool strategy, the right idea of competitive edge, the fulcrum point, everything we talk about. Where's your edge? You know, have a business, do it in size, replicate it. It was all lined up, except for the fact that PPP came in and stopped it. Interesting. All right, I'm going to leave you on on one question, and we're going to bring it home. You've been in this business 40 years. You've seen a lot. What do you wish you had focused more on, and what do you wish you had focused less on? Great question. The business I missed in the last six to seven years was industrial. I understood e-commerce and its growth. I never fell in love with industrial because I've always been a big believer that location, location, location matters. So I needed the shopping center on the right corner, or I need that office building in the heart of the town, okay? Industrial was, and, or, and maybe the value-add execution of a property to value-add skills. Industrial always bothered me because you didn't have to be at the right corner. You could be at an industrial park down a road in a forest somewhere. There was no real value, a lot of value add because basically a butler building wasn't, was easier for people to build, easier for people to replicate. So to me, it was, it felt like a commodity. And, you know, and looking back over the last seven years, there's been a lot of people who've made a lot of money in industrial and elevated to real logistics and found ways to add value. So it was an arena that we participate some. We have a 2 million square foot facility right at the Philadelphia airport, right on rail, right next to FedEx, right next to the airplanes. To me, that was strategic, right on the highway. We're going to buy that. But what I'll call the commodity-like industrial was a place that we didn't play, even though we knew the strength of e-commerce and that you need three times the more warehouse spaces e-commerce grows. 
So if I look back at one regret of an asset class, that was it. The, what could have I avoided? We created this business in 2003 of creating these master plan resort communities. We buy big books around 2,000 acres. We pre-sell lots, use that money to build these communities that had second homes, condominiums, three golf courses. I like the fact that we were high barrier to entry assets. I like the fact that we were major markets. And what hit us in 2000, and by the way, we were keeping low leverage. So the thought was, if we go into recession, since we had no debt on our balance sheet, we'd be the owner, like in Florida. What happened was in 2008, in the great financial crisis, there was no floor to these assets. So condominiums that we pre-sold, 600 of them for 650,000, when the GFC happened, they became worth 250,000. Why? Because they were second homes. People were worried about their first homes. They could not absorb two body punches. The sickening part was I go to those communities today, you know, 12 <laughs> years later, they're on fire, okay? <laughs> Reunion in Orlando, on fire. Deal in Naples, on fire. We were right. We just didn't have the right capital structure. And we were going after something that I said earlier, rental assets only. We could balance cash flow and back end. And when you go into assets that are back end weighted, discretionary, non-necessity, okay? Second home, condo, golf courses, stuff like that. They didn't have the downside protection in a great downturn. And the essence of investing is avoid losses at all costs, no disasters. You need 90%. A, number one, you got to protect the downside, which is you've got to seek asymmetrical returns where risk is protection of capital. And then the alpha can be created through real estate execution skills. So you've got to limit any losses. You need the bulk winners. That's a portfolio. And if you have a portfolio that's just 50% high risk losers or 50% winners, that's a terrible portfolio. So if you stick to that thesis, that I got to protect capital at all costs on the downside. And I could go for the alpha through value creation. That leads you to the case of you're not going to do the discretionary type residential resorts that we did in 2008. And to conclude on that, I was so sick about the results. I came in, obviously I never invested in that and maybe people make money. I can't even look at a golf course today, okay? It, it sickens me after we went through. So my point is, it was a it was a tough lesson to learn, but it completely revitalized our company, which is saying we know exactly what we want to focus on. And if our and both we thought we were protecting the downside by no debt and having a high barrier asset and pre-selling things in advance, we thought our strategy was totally downside protected. But when you have a great travesty like the great financial crisis, the rental assets rebounded, those don't, and that says it all. If that's the case, let other people do that and play with that. I could never live through that period. And I always say one more thing in that 2008 period. I say in 2009 and 10 were tough years, okay? And we still had like a billion dollars of buying power. So I said, this was my day. In the morning, I would wake up. And all the asset management issues of these resorts, I said, come get it. 
punch me, kick me, scream at me. I'm working my head off, but let me have it. At one o'clock, I'd have lunch and a miserable one. I have lunch at two o'clock, I go back. And now I go in the acquisition. I have capital. I can buy things at a bargain. So all afternoon, I'd be out buying things at a bargain, which we rebounded amazingly with the new capital. So that night when I went back to bed, (laughs) I felt great. Okay. (laughs) So it was a way to work through two years. And then here's the last thing. The way to this. Real estate for cyclical business. There's distress period, recovery period, and asset bubble period. 2008 was distressed. The recovery was 2012 to 16. Then we had asset bubbles 17 to 19. What? And then we have distress again, pandemic 20, and distress again in 23. And here is the conclusion through 40 years of investing. You make the most money with the least risk during periods of turmoil of distress because you can access assets and debt at a lower cost basis, hold your position, and ride the recovery. The biggest risk is when things are great, the asset bubble, 17, where people are paying 25 times cash flow because of low debt. And then you go into a distressed period and you're crushed. So what you learn, and this is the hardest thing to do, back up the truck in distressed periods, not, not because it's contrarian, no, quite opposite, it's logical. If you believe real estate is a fundamentally good business over time, you go through cycles, but it recovers. The only time to access assets at a lower cost basis, having a better cost basis lower is an advantage to competition. I'd rather own positions at 70% of value than 100%. If I could accumulate positions at 70 and ride up the recovery, it's a winning strategy. So the conclusion for all real estate people, Every 10 years, work the first three years when you're in distress, <laughs> take the next seven years off, and come back. So that's how we'll conclude it for today. All right. I got to ask you one question, then. You can answer it yes or no. Are you buying yet? No, I'm doing preferred equity credit. Okay. You can't buy. There's no common equity deals. But doing preferred equity, I'm getting equity returns for lend for credit risk. So that, yes, and it conclude at asymmetrical returns is the dream of any investor in any asset class, whether in public equities, whether in energy, whether you're in venture capital, when you're private equity or real estate. And the opportunity exists today in real estate. Dean, this was awesome. Thank you so much for today. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Fort Podcast. Be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform or hop on over to YouTube to watch full video episodes if that's what you prefer. For more information, you can check out thefortpod.com. 